Our second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, and this can be found on page 15 in the New Testament portion of your Pew Bibles. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The preacher George Buttrick was once on an airplane headed home after a conference, During the flight, he pulled out a notepad and began to work on Sunday's sermon. After a few minutes, the man sitting next to him spoke up. Excuse me for interrupting you, he said. I see you're working hard. I'm just wondering, what are you working on? Well, I'm a minister, Buttrick said. I'm working on my sermon for Sunday. Ah, religion, said the man. I can't say I'm much into the complexities of religion myself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, that's about all the religion I need. I see, said Buttrick, and what do you do? I'm an astronomy professor, said the man. I teach at the university. Ah, astronomy, said Buttrick. I can't say I know much about the complexities of astronomy Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's about all the astronomy I need. In just about every sphere of our lives, from relationships to politics to science to religion, we are tempted constantly to reduce complex concepts down to simplistic ideas that are easier for us to grasp. We long to break things down into the lowest common denominator so that we can either accept or reject them. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. They'll never truly understand one another. Everyone knows that a certain type of person goes to the University of Virginia and a completely different type to Virginia Tech. And then there's that picture, maybe you've seen it, of Nancy Pelosi this week in a meeting with President Trump and a bunch of other people, and she's talking to him and pointing her finger. How you interpret that picture 
pretty much defines where you are on the political spectrum. Something about being human makes us prone to categorize, compartmentalize, and stereotype. We long for certainty. Can you think of a time when you thought you understood something or someone completely? When you really thought you knew what this person or organization or idea was all about? But then something happened and your sense of certainty was called into question. It's not a great feeling, is it? It's disorienting and sometimes disappointing. And yet, if the stories of our tradition teach us anything, it's that it is when we admit and even embrace uncertainty that God begins the hard but important work of transforming us. Not long after my friend Samantha graduated from seminary in New York City and accepted a call to a Presbyterian church in Asheville, a church that was committed to social justice and activism, she took a trip to New Orleans with some friends. She and her friends marveled at the way this city brings together this wild mix of cultures, French, Cajun, African, Spanish, English, welcoming all kinds of people as they are. One day, Samantha and her friends took a self-guided walking tour of some of the city's historic houses. They came upon a beautiful yellow mansion, which had a sign in front identifying it as an inn. They began talking to the manager of the inn who was sitting on the porch, and Samantha asked him, tell me the history here. Who used to own this house? Well, actually, it was owned by a Presbyterian minister, the man replied. Samantha's face lit up. Really? She said. I'm a Presbyterian minister. Is that right? The man said. Well, that guy's name was the Reverend Benjamin Palmer, and he was a big racist. In fact, they say it was his Thanksgiving sermon that inspired the state of Louisiana to break away from the Union. Huh. Samantha said, did I say I was a Presbyterian minister? What she wanted most in that moment was to become invisible. She had been so certain of what it meant to be a minister in her tradition, a follower of Jesus Christ. And she left deeply unsettled by the realization that someone with the title reverend would perpetuate injustice and suffering rather than work to eliminate it. At the beginning of the passage we heard today, Jesus doesn't just invite the disciples to take a boat to cross the sea, a sea notorious for getting swept up in sudden storms. He makes them go. The Greek says he compels them to go. And they're not going to their homes or a familiar vacation spot, he sends them to the other side, to an unfamiliar place, to a people they, do, they don't know, to a destination that was probably not particularly appealing. But they go, and sure enough, a storm kicks up. Now, this isn't the story where the disciples are afraid that they will perish in the storm. In this story, 
It seems that these experienced fishermen can handle the storm, but the wind is so strong it prevents them from getting all the way into shore. They are delayed more than they are dismayed until in the early hours of the morning when they're physically and emotionally exhausted, they see someone walking toward them on the water. They can only assume it must be a ghost, and that is what terrifies them. The uncertainty of who this could be and what this could mean. But then Jesus calls out to them, take heart, it's just me. You can imagine their collective sigh of relief. But Jesus' words are not enough reassurance for Peter. Do you remember Peter? Eager, impetuous Peter, the disciple who always forgets to raise his hand before he blurts out the answer to Jesus' every question. This moment is no different. Peter does not hesitate. If it's you, Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. In the midst of fear and uncertainty, Peter seems to think that the way to find out for sure that this is Jesus walking on water is to see if he will invite Peter to leave the relative safety of the boat and come closer toward him across the waves. When I was a kid in the late 70s and early 80s, my favorite equipment on the playground was the monkey bars, that thing that was like a horizontal ladder and you hung from it and one hand to another, you could propel yourself across. Now, as much as I love the monkey bars, it took me a while to master them. Over and over again, I'd hang from that first bar and try to swing myself to the next one and fall down. I fell a lot. But I kept trying until one day I did it. I started at one end and could get all the way across without falling. I've noticed that newer playgrounds don't seem to have monkey bars or seesaws. And the slides, they're not as high as they used to be and they're never made from that aluminum that would get really hot in the sun, but man, you could go flying down it. These so-called safety-first playgrounds are built on the soft surfaces, not concrete or asphalt, but wood chips or that spongy stuff that's made of recycled tires. So no more hard landings or skinned knees. Now, there is nothing wrong with wanting to keep our children safe on the playground, but studies have shown that when we make an environment too safe, When we make it too easy, children don't have the chance to take risks, to push themselves, sometimes literally, to new heights. And as hard as it is for us to let the children in our lives take risks, feel pain, even fail, it is only when children face their fears that they find out they can handle adversity. It is only when we take risks that we discover our capacity for resilience, problem-solving, self-reliance. It is only when we take on a challenge that we discover that rising to a challenge can itself be incredibly satisfying.
As a commencement speaker once said to the graduates of Ohio University, developing a skill is painful, it's difficult, and that is part of the satisfaction. You will only find meaning in what you struggle with. You will only find meaning in what you struggle with. Peter, it seems, has picked up on this message, which Jesus preaches often, sometimes with subtlety, like in a parable about the challenges of getting seed to bear fruit, sometimes more directly with words like, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, or pick up your cross and follow me. Like Peter, sooner or later on our journeys of faith, we will discover that anything worth having will cost us something, whether it's money or time or effort or our sense of safety, security, and certainty. Like Peter, we will discover that to take the next step toward Jesus We have to leave the boat. We are in the midst of this sermon series on unraveling. And when we think of unraveling, we probably think of fabric or yarn, something woven together that slowly comes apart. In that sense, unraveling might seem like a negative thing, but it's not necessarily bad. Because when something like a knitted blanket unravels, it becomes the raw material that it started from. And that material can then be used to create something new, different but not entirely so. Unraveling is part of transformation. The kind of transformation God offers us by calling us away from what is comfortable and familiar and certain. The Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico was founded over 30 years ago by Father Richard Rohr. Father Rohr is a Catholic priest, a prolific author and teacher, and one of his greatest contributions is this concept he has of the first and second half of life. These halves of life are not delineated by time. They don't necessarily correlate to years lived. It's the kind of path we are on at any given moment. The first half of life is the time we spend building a stable sense of identity that provides us with certainty and security. It's when we build up our ego by pursuing success in a career and in relationships by making a name for ourselves. The second half of life, whether or not it comes at the halfway point, is when we realize there is something deeper, something more than this individual identity we work so hard to build and maintain, and that what is more important is giving that identity away in service to others. In a recent interview, Michael Poffenberger, the current executive director of the center, reflected on the value of disruption in our lives. 
Almost to a T, he said, the people who come into our programs come because something in their life is falling apart. Somebody died. They lost their job. Their faith container fell apart. Their old certitudes no longer make sense, and they feel in the dark. He continues, the contemplative tradition that we teach is really about how you hold the wisdom in that unknowing. How you settle into the reality that our lives are a mystery rather than focusing on the upward climb. A pastor friend of mine has a similar view of disruption. He says he feels it is his job as a minister to help the members of his church hit their midlife crisis as early in their lives as possible. Because this kind of crisis creates an openness and receptivity to God that few other things can. A midlife crisis is a moment when what we thought was certain is suddenly thrown into question. Whether that crisis is one of vocation or values or relationship or identity, it's the kind of moment the disciples experience when in the midst of this overwhelming storm, Jesus shows up, moving toward them in a whole new way. It is this kind of uncertainty that can open us up to the transformative work of God that can inspire us to draw closer to God and discover not only who God is, but what we are capable of when we draw near to God and God draws near to us. When Peter asked Jesus to command him to come out of the boat and walk on water, it's because he had already learned that this is how we recognize God at work When God disrupts our usual ways of being and thinking and doing to transform our understanding of who we are and what we're capable of. And for a moment, for Peter, it works. He walks on water. But when he gets distracted by the storm and begins to sink, he doesn't turn and swim back for the boat. He doesn't just disappear all of a sudden under the waves. As soon as he begins sinking, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And immediately, the text says, Jesus reaches out to him. This cycle of faith is clear. Invitation, disruption, transformation. And with it all comes the realization that we don't have to weather the storm or walk on water alone. It is God who will disrupt us by calling into question everything about which we are certain. It is God who will command us to leave the safety of the boat and get up close and personal with the storm. But God is also with us in every single moment, close enough that when we come face to face with uncertainty that unravels everything we thought we knew, that is the very place we will find God, who offers us not the comfort of certainty, but wonder and mercy 
and love, enough to see us through any of life's storms. Amen.